Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome back once again to the Tennis Podcast and Olympics Relived Take Three. Well, it's the fourth Olympics we'll be reliving and our third podcast because the first one was about 17 hours long. Uh, I think the second one came in at approx an hour. Um, So that is roughly what we'll be bringing you today when we relive the Sydney 2000 turning of the millennium Olympics and Matt is alive, but not <laughs> you, <laughs> not not in the realms of memory. That you you're still this is something you're living rather than reliving, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. I am. Um, I think I remember there being fanfare about Steve Redgrave winning the fifth gold medal in the fifth games in a row, but. I think I remember that, but mainly Athens is the is the one that I can remember first most clearly. But actually, I had a history teacher at secondary school who was in Steve Redgrave's first boat in Los Angeles in the Coxless Falls, Martin Cross. He uh, you he had a celebrity history. history teacher. Yeah, he he, he taught we me history. We went to very different schools, Matt. <laughs> um, and I believe he was also in the Notebook, the film, the, the film. What? Mm, I believe he's credited as rower in the notebook. So he's lived uh, an interesting life, teaching part-time history, winning the Olympics and appearing in one of the biggest rom-coms. So, yeah. A, no, there's no com. Okay, just rom. Have you not seen it? No. Have you seen it, David? Mm, doesn't ring any bells. The notebook, right, okay. What's it about? I don't know what I'm dealing with here. Um <laughs> It's a it's a it's a heartbreaking uh, romance, lovely. Uh, okay, a great. I, I do tough kn- tough crowd for that. I do know where I was <laughs> for the Steve Redgrave gold though, because I was um, best man at, uh, at my my oldest mate's wedding, and we were on his stag do, uh, and we were in Dublin, and there was a lock in whilst we decided the entire pub to watch and stay up for Steve Redgrave's golden moment. And um, I, I'm not a drinker, as you know. Uh, two beers law is my name for a reason. Well, by the time Steve Redgrave got into that boat, I was on my seventh pint of Guinness. 
this was a, a different David Law. Um, and I don't Are remember. Photos available of this time. Yeah, I don't remember too much yeah. about it, to be honest. I think the internet might like to see those photos. <laughs> there we are. I don't I, I mean I was just at school during that Olympics what well, I think I think the moment the iconic moment the equivalent of the Muhammad Ali torch lighting uh, moment for me at the Sydney Olympics was Kathy Freeman running the the 400 meters in that body suit thing that that green white and green and yellow green yeah. and yeah and of course the the symbolism and the significance of that for for aboriginal history um in australia and everything but also just the the arresting visual of her of her winning gold and standing out from the crowd and being a trailblazer in in every every possible way i think that's what i remember most from it and steve redgrave of course but yeah, in terms of other things that were going on at the 2000 Olympics that you may or may not remember, uh, brace yourselves, there's quite a lot of drugs stuff here. <laughs> um, Marion Jones won five track and field medals, three gold, uh, two bronze in the long jump. Uh, during this impressive haul, her husband, shot putter CJ Hunter, returned a positive doping test. And of course... Uh, some years later, Marion Jones herself, uh, it emerged, had herself been doping. And I watched an extraordinary documentary about that once. Actually, she's one of the few sort of high profile dopers that have completely just owned up to it and said, yeah, I was doing it. It wasn't a mistake or me accidentally taking some medicine that I didn't realise was banned or whatever. She's just, yeah, completely... Held her hands up about it, which, you know, make of that what you will. Anyway, double Olympic champion Marie-José Perec quit the Games, claiming to be hounded by fans and media. Um, and that left home favourite Cathy Freeman to take the gold in the 400 metres. Uh, North and South Korea paraded together with a banner representing the Korean Peninsula at the opening ceremony. Jason Queeley set an Olympic record and won gold in the one-kilometre road cycling time trial. He didn't take up cycling properly until the age of 25, having previously tried water polo and triathlon. Maybe he should be my inspiration. I was going to say, there you go, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> go and get your bow and arrow. So, so someone, I am, so, I am I think nifty it, on the peloton. Mm. I think it was Katura <laughs> actually, on Twitter, replied that there's been a 68-year-old uh, winner in archery, or medalist, certainly. And there's Nick Skelton in equestrian. Um, I don't yeah, think I'm yeah, I mean, I was just going with archery because though. that was, you know... That, my, my sport that is choice. your calling. Yeah. If you do the horse... I mean, the horse does all the work, doesn't it? So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure my dodgy back and hips would be up to... And, and the arrow does all the work in archery, so <laughs> yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah, just like the racket does all the work in tennis. Mm. Legally blind American Maria Runyon came eighth in the 1500 metres. She's the first athlete to have competed in both an Olympics and Paralympics. And David, I'm sure you remember this, Eric Malonga known as Eric the Eel, competed for Equatorial Guinea in the 100-metre freestyle in his first swim in an Olympic-sized pool. His time of 1 minute 52 seconds was the slowest in Olympic history. However, he won his heat 
after both his competitors were disqualified <laughs> due to false starts. I mean, he could also be an inspiration for me. Uh, yeah, I'd say more relatable. <laughs> um, everyone remembers Eric the Eel, yeah, don't they? Oh, for sure. No, he was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so that's what was going on general Olympics-wise in the year 2000. In terms of the tennis, we had Venus Williams winning the women's gold medal. She beat Elena Dementieva in the final, and that was after winning Wimbledon and the US Open that year. The Sydney Olympics came, uh, of course, after the US Open. So what a year for Venus Williams. Those were her first Grand Slam titles that year. Um, and it was her 32nd win in what would become a 35-match winning streak, which is ridiculous. Uh, she also won the doubles gold with uh, with sister Serena. I mean, it's not a bad year for Venus, this, is it? It's... No. I read some great quotes in the New York Times where they said uh, that Venus has become the dream squisher of the women's tour. <laughs> One after another, opponents have come at Williams with optimism only to leave devastated. And then apparently after the Olympics, they said in a couple of weeks, Williams will gather her back-to-school pencils and notebooks and plop down in a fashion design class. And if a teacher or classmate should ask, so what did you do last summer? She can present the show and tell of all time with her two olympic gold medals that she won god um, that would be the absolute coolest Mm. only if they were about her person at the time which (laughs) of course they should be catherine would go back to school in order to do show and tell so she (laughs) had gold medals um i i think that that year and that run that you describe has to be one of the all-time underrated records as well, mm. because we do not talk about this unless we have cause to look into it like this. I just don't think it comes up in conversation. We we had it with Martina Hingis winning those three slams in a year in 97, um, and I'd say this one even more so. She It, it just it seems to be in the shadows for some reason, and um, and I think that's a shame. And again, only 20 years old, so... Yeah, at what stage does somebody over the age of 20 win a women's women's gold medal? Well, okay, well, I'm not going to spoil anything. <laughs> Tune in to the next episode to find out if someone over the age of 20 wins a women's singles gold. Um, but yeah, an absolutely extraordinary feat. And of course, she became the first, first person to win singles and doubles gold at the same Olympics, of course sister Serena ended up doing the same thing but that was something that she did before Serena and there aren't many of those things no uh, Venus described that doubles gold as as possibly more valuable to her than the singles um because of of achieving it with her sister and um it's you I, I love the fact that they played doubles together because they properly got chance to show everybody how much each other meant to them because the only other time you saw them together, okay, you occasionally saw one player in the support team box applauding and supporting the other, but when they would play each other, inevitably at the end of the match, one of them is disappointed. No matter how happy they might be for their sister, at least in the doubles, they could just go crazy uh, in terms of celebrations <laughs> together. And you saw you saw it all. And I know this is Olympics where we live, but speaking of underrated records, I think Venus and Serena's record together in doubles generally is underrated i think they've played and won 14 grand slam finals together they've never lost in a grand slam final and i think they've only lost once at the olympics Whoa. together Whoa. incredible 
Um, Billie Jean King was the USA team captain uh, in 2000, helped by Zena Garrison. That's a pretty formidable double act there. And I wonder the uh, the United States team did so well. I, I get the impression from the way people talk about it that Sydney was a really fun, jubilant, uplifting Olympics. I mean, the world, it was it was pre 9-11, wasn't it? It was, it was, I don't know, the world was kind of in a, a, a good place. Everything felt, everything felt positive. I mean, obviously there were bad things happening in the world. They always are. But I don't know. I look back on that period and think <laughs> we didn't know how, how good we had it. It was kind of a bit of a holiday from holiday from history to borrow to borrow someone else's um, poetic turn of phrase. Um, and it just, I don't know, it felt like, I mean, the Olympics is about celebration of sport and unity. And Sydney kind of felt like a, an, an apex of that somehow. Couldn't have been more different to 96 either in the way it followed that. And it was, it was uplifting. I, the, a lot of people, when you canvas opinion i i know a lot of people although i've never worked personally in olympic games i know a lot of people at bbc radio and tv that have worked several olympics and the majority of them i mean there's there's great affection for everybody we know obviously for 2012 but those that worked 2000 uh, sydney probably talk about that one with more appreciation and wide eyes than any do the people you know who've worked Olympics get Olympic fatigue in the way that sometimes... If they do, I'll happily take their job. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Would you like to work an Olympic... Like, I mean, I know you've worked the, the Winter Olympics, but would you like to work a Summer Olympics? Or is there something... Yep. <laughs> is, it, is there something magical about viewing it as a fan that maybe you... You know, m- maybe your experience of tennis having worked in it maybe it's slightly lost some of the magic obviously i know we're all massive tennis fans still but occasionally some kind of cynicism can creep in a little bit but we don't really have that with the olympics is that kind of what we're saying i don't know i'm interested whether your view of the olympics is influenced by the fact that you've only ever watched it as a fan and had that i'm I'm quite sure it is because i'm leander pays-esque wide-eyed about it and I absolutely loved my experience of working at Pyeongchang and in terms of the sport um, it only it only heightened my Olympic joy but some cynicism did creep in around the sort of more administrative corporate sides of things because just becoming aware of the the corporate side of the Olympics which you just don't ever see on the TV mm. that feels like a sort of eye-opening cynicism inducing experience i mean everyone's sort of aware that it's a it's a huge machine and lots of money on the line and lots of stakeholders with with incentives that aren't anything to do with the sport etc etc corrupting influences and i suppose yeah i did become more aware of those actually being there and that's not necessarily it's a slightly more unpleasant underbelly to it all especially seeing how much you know money makes the whole machine machine turn and and there is a there is as we've experienced with tennis there is a cost to getting to live your dreams and and cover these major sporting events and the cost is not being able to watch them as a fan for me it's a cost it's a price worth paying but it is absolutely a cost you know i i took two weeks off work for for the london olympics and i watched every single minute of them i mean i was just sat in front of 
the TV. I remember I got that accidentally um, in my eagerness not to, to waste any time trying to find a parking space. Um, I've, I had a car and I had to use street parking because my, my flat didn't have parking space at the time. I, I illegally parked and I thought I could just outside my flat and I thought I could get away with it anyway. I got clamped and got a ticket and I got towed to to a, a car dump yard place in the absolute end of the earth. I can't believe I didn't get murdered when I went to collect this car. My flatmate had to drive me to the end of the world to collect the car and it was... It was while the Olympics was on and we were, I remember sort of setting a schedule with her we like, oh, we've got to drive to this place, but can we squeeze in in between that uh, Olympic rowing event and that um, athletics mm-hmm. event? And of course we had it on the radio blaring out, but it was like, okay, we've got a 45 minute window here to go and try and not get murdered, retrieve my car and get back here. And and yeah, you you lose all of that. Joy. I mean, I know I've not made it sound particularly joyful. Um, should, should add, but, Matt, uh, that uh, it's correct that she did book two weeks off work because she was working for me. <laughs> and uh, hence why I don't remember any of the Olympics because I was doing all the work. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sending a tense, a tense uh, penultimate lies. Olympics release. It's all it was, lies. We, was, weren't, we weren't doing the Olympics. It was, it was research, Davis. Yeah, it's research. Anyway, right. that's London 2012. I've just, I mean... Oh, yeah. yeah it wasn't, we, even, we, wasn't even a good story I digressed with. We, anyway. we just fast-forwarded 12 years. <laughs> it, was, it was a great story. There was towing. It was, it was great. Near you, murders. Um, could <laughs> I just, heard I the also, pays and raised the I would also like to let you know that I managed to talk myself out of that fine, parking fine. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and I was definitely, definitely in the wrong. But anyway... Uh, Olympics, Sydney, 2000. Yeah, Dave, I mean, that question was really directed at David more than me, wasn't it, about the Olympic, about the Olympic fatigue and the, the broadcasters, you know, that have, that have worked well, with them and whether... And do any of them, I'm paraphrasing a, a question that Matt put perfectly well himself, but is, do any of them seem jaded by I, the Olympics I do, I do remember at, in 2012, one of my colleagues working i think the hockey and just being stationed at the hockey and feeling as though and it didn't kind of take off in terms of medals i think uh, on that occasion and he ended up feeling as though he just wanted to get where the action was he wanted to see what everybody was raving about and he felt as mm. though he couldn't as a result of it and he wasn't feeling the olympic joy and spirit in the way that many of the others were but I, I was listening, uh, I'll give him a plug, an old colleague of mine, Jonathan Overend, um, who works within tennis for many, many years for BBC Radio. He's he's like you, Catherine. He's an absolute Olympic nut. And he... Me, Jonathan Leander Pace, yeah. out for tea one and day. He, was, um, he, he worked the 2012 Olympics and just... T- he, he was so down when it finished. He it was it was like when it ended. He just he, his view was nothing will ever be the same again. I'll never have anything like this again. Um, and he's actually. I mean, he started a, a a podcast where he's interviewing people like Mark Pugach and John Inverdale, who've worked so many Olympia Olympics between them and Sonny McLaughlin, people from BBC Radio, just dozens between them of, of Olympic Games, and all of them. Now, I think there there can be a bit of rose-tinted specs about this because th- there are the logistical challenges that you reference sometimes and the bureaucracy that can, and we see it in tennis all the time, it's inevitable that there are things that are tiresome, there are things that tire you out and get you down. 
but their recollections of it are misty-eyed and and uplifting actually when you listen to them talk about it they regard it as the greatest show on earth that's those are their words and i mean i didn't i didn't work the london olympics i didn't even get get tickets which is a a, a desperate regret i tried as hard as i could luckily the um the cycling road race the route came down putney high street so i <laughs> i i stationed myself on putney high street sort of for most of the day with a with a step ladder uh, and a radio so that when mark cavendish whizzed past i could say that i sort of saw the london olympics even though i, I really didn't um but i remember i mean this is going to be really depressing now but without even having worked on it i had a really a sort of depressed really sort of fatalistic moment after it thinking that was it that was that was the chance to go to uh, and or work at a home olympics and that will never happen again it is a certainty in my lifetime that that opportunity won't happen again um and that put a bit of a lump in my throat and is doing so doing so again now to think to think that it's such a relatively young age a door was closed you know I'm, I'm pretty optimistic and ambitious and everything always you know think well if you if I want to do something I'll set about trying to do it and I can't set about trying to do that um but you're wishing you hadn't asked the question now Matt aren't you <laughs> I really really am I've got I've got one thing to say to that Catherine hit me archery <laughs> But not at a home games. I mean, look, I wouldn't be picky <laughs> if I got <laughs> if I got selected for the team. I wouldn't go. Oh, what? Is there no chance in, that it's the, in Paris? Is there no chance it can come back in the next fifty years? I mean, it's the only. It's already the only. I mean, we're totally spoiling the twenty twelve episode here. But in for a penny, in for a pound. It's already the only city to have hosted the games three times. Yeah. I mean, it depends it's how long I, long I live. I mean, Jack. life expectancies are lengthening, aren't they? Birmingham then. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll we'll bid for a winter games, and I can dust off my skating skating you, boots. You need to get in with the golfer uh, Bryson DeChambeau. I read some quotes yesterday saying that Is he, he looking wants looking for a caddy. No, but he thinks he can live to a, to one hundred and forty. <laughs> He's a he's a bit mental, and uh, and he's kind of what? redefining golf at the moment. And he also thinks he can redefine life. And he said he wants to he wants to kind of be active until he's one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty. Someone dope test that man immediately. Mm. If he keeps eating the way he has been, he is. <laughs> I mean, I'd be worried that he's going to have a a good life expectancy. To be honest. Anyway, um, returning to. To the, <laughs> the year 2000. Let's all meet up in the year 2000. Um, Evgeny Kafelnikov won the men's singles gold. Another man, along with Andre Agassi, that has a 100% Olympic record because this was the only Olympics that he played. I couldn't believe it, actually, when I was looking at the records to see that he didn't play the Atlanta Olympics in 96 because that, you know, felt like the, the natural one for him to play to me because 96 was such a stellar year for for Kafelnikov but no he skipped that um, and that's something we we talked about when I spoke to him uh, a couple of days ago ever entertaining Evgeny Kafelnikov and of course the Olympics in in 2000 was was held at the end of the year which I, I don't know about you guys but I think in an ideal world I think that works best 
Mm, yeah. that, rather than the sandwiching in between Wimbledon and the US Open. I know where that has to be. I don't expect the Olympics to schedule itself around the the, the tennis season, but it's, it's suboptimal, that mm. sandwiching in. So yeah, it was held after the US Open. And of course, that US Open in 2000, the men's event was won by 20-year-old Marit Safin, who just blasted his way through that field and and won the title rose to world number one and sort of in doing so became a became rival of Yevgeny Kafelnikov's who was the established Russian force and I asked Yevgeny how much of an effect um, that win for Safin at the US Open had on his mentality going into Sydney. Marat, the result uh, was always uh, a motivation for me because we're competing one against another all the time. And I was, I was like driven force for him and he was a driven force for me to, to always get, get better because we're both Russian and uh, tennis in Russia at the time was, uh, was I think, number, number two, definitely, or top three, definitely, sport in the country. So... I understood that, uh, you know, by playing well at the Olympics would kind of, uh, you know, change change my my year if I, if I did well. And uh, again, uh, it came it, it came in the right way. I I, I don't say I was uh, was was playing well at the time, but uh, throughout every match I was gaining confidence and each each step closer to the title match I was. The confidence was growing. So, and again, the atmosphere at the Olympic Games is unique, uh, unlike no others. So, that was also kind of important factor. How is it different? The atmosphere? Can you describe it? Well, again, the Olympic Village, the dining area. You know, you see all the athletes. I was, you know, I was able to kind of get out of my comfort zone going into the you know different event like gymnastics basketballs to watch all the other stars because you know a lot of uh, top prof- professional athletes were there who were you know perhaps were idolizing so you know swimming i remember i went to the uh, event so in 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 that sense i was you know playing my match early in the morning or late at night and i was having a day off next day going to the you know different sporting venues and seeing different different sports it was it was it was fantastic do you remember being inspired by any other sport or athlete in particular i think everyone uh, everyone else in the, in the in the village especially the russians were inspiring to see you know myself and, and safin pretty much hanging around uh, you know dining area and the uh, and the olympic village but uh, I remember I saw I saw some some great athletes, especially the Russian ones. I went to the wrestling. I saw Karelin uh, uh, wrestles, then some some other some other ones. I can't remember. So you you stayed in the Olympic Village. Were you ever was that ever in in question? Because sometimes tennis players don't. I've spoken to a few uh, a few players that have elected not to mm-hmm. stay in the Olympic Village because. Because the village wasn't air conditioned, or you did. I didn't. I, I, I didn't stay in the Olympic Village. I was. Uh, I had. Uh, I was staying in a hotel, but I was. I was there only for for my sleep. <laughs> Throughout the whole day, I was in the Olympic Village. I only was going to to get the sleep in the hotel room uh, at night. That's all. So you had the best of both worlds. I didn't. 
Exactly. Um, So you gained confidence kind of through every round and then the final against Haas. What what do you remember feeling Mm -hmm. going into that match? Because, of course, at that stage, you're guaranteed a medal. You're guaranteed something. It's kind of a completely different mental dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, for it. No, 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 no. It's, it's, uh, listen, I, w- I wasn't happy just to be in the final, and and you know, that's that's the uniqueness of the Olympic Games because the event is every f- once every four years. So, having said that, uh, we have we have Grand Slams pretty much, uh, you know, four times four times a year, but the, this this tournament's once in the, in the four years. So the stretch of time where you can actually succeed uh, is it's very small. It, it is, I, I can say, it's, uh, the winning the gold medal is like uh, winning the jackpot and lottery. There is no guarantee that, you know, you, you're going to feel well on that particular moment in time and you, you might be not playing well in that particular moment in time. So, again, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling happy just to get the medal if you know what I mean, by being in the final. So I was, I was uh, motivated to, to win a medal, to win a gold medal, because, you know, you get the opportunity once in a lifetime, that's for sure. What were you thinking when you lost that fourth set and you're heading into a fifth? <sighs> Look, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the exact de- details, but, uh, you, you know, I always uh, throughout the whole match, I told myself, look, you know, you're never going to get another chance and uh, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life if you lose the match. Mm-hmm. So that's the only approach throughout the whole match I had. I just watched highlights of the match and your, your celebration mm-hmm. when you won. It looked quite, mm-hmm. quite different to how you celebrated when you won your Grand Slams. You weren't always sort of that demonstrative or emotional on the court but you looked really emotional that that day uh, I wouldn't say that there was a, I mean I, I was celebrating uh, well when I won my French and in my Australian Open titles but again I, I, I could say that uh, you know Olympic goals they're just the, they're just different compared to the slams because you know the tournaments every once in the four years so you you know that you you've accomplished something Something a bit more special, I would say. But again, uh, I would not put the, my Olympic gold medal above the all, all uh, Grand Slams I have won. They all stand on the on the same plateau for me. They all they all mean a lot to me. But Olympic game is just. I think it's it's a bit more difficult to win than than the Grand Slam because because of that uh, factor. It's once every four years. So the, the Olympic gold would stand equal for you with the the Grand Slams. Absolutely, absolutely. I would uh, I would not uh, put my Grand Slam titles above uh, my Olympic gold medal, and and vice versa. Do you remember the medal ceremony and hearing the national anthem for you? Yes, yes, I remember. You know, it was quite a long one, and uh, Thomas Bach, the the current. Uh, the current uh, president, uh, he always, uh, he obviously wanted to, you know, congratulate Tommy Hasby in German and put the gold medal on his uh, neck. But uh, that was, that was me <laughs> on the on the first place, unfortunately. But uh, yes, anthem, you know, every ceremony. I think a lot of Russian athletes came to support me, which is, was uh, necessary. 
And then uh, we went to the Russian house after that uh, for a couple hours celebrating. So, yeah, it, it is unique, unlike any others. Did, did you have a chance to properly celebrate it? Because I've spoken to a lot of winners that said because tennis just keeps on going, they had to fly mm -hmm. out to Cincinnati or whatever the next the next day and they never really got mm -hmm. a chance to, to properly enjoy what they'd achieved. I think I, I think I had a proper celebration again uh, with all the all the Russian athletes in the, in the, in the, in the Russian house for a couple hours. I can't I can't remember exactly when I left, but we were staying staying in the house, you know, drinking beer. So there, it was it was a proper celebration because I felt like that that uh, title and medal didn't belong to me. It, it uh, belonged to the the whole country. So. So in that sense, we were, you know, celebrating quite big. You know, it's a good celebration if you can't remember it. <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> do you remember returning to Russia afterwards and and the reception that that you got? Ooh, that's, uh, I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I went home uh, right after. I think I went to. To Germany or to, to, to practice or something like this, but uh, I think a week later or a couple of weeks later, we had a reception at the Kremlin with the current uh, president. He invited us. So uh, that, was, that, that, that time like? when I came, oh, the, the you know the special, you know the one uh, one um, leader of the country is just uh, uh, you know inviting you and. Uh, the the whole the whole uh, procedure is uh, is is very very unique and uh, you know unlike any other. So uh, we we were just uh, having a definitely a great time there. Representing your country, it kind of means different things to to different athletes, particularly depending on where they're from. I think being mm -hmm. being Russian and playing. A global sport, not not that long mm -hmm. really after the end of the Cold War. What did it mean to you to represent Russia in that context? You mean a lot. We, especially me, I wanted to prove that uh, Russian athletes and then Russian nations are, you know, globally respected, and that's uh, that's a kind of motivation I I always had playing. Uh, for the countries, events like Davis Cup, you know, Olympic uh, Games, and so on. But you, you said it right. You know, tennis is a global sport, uh, and uh, athletes, uh, you know, tennis athletes, they are well known all around the world. And uh, again, you, you can ask uh, all the other Russians uh, tennis players. They, they really. Really proud that uh, they always wanted to compete in a, in a team competition and represent their country, and, and I was the same. And you you never got the chance to defend your title. Did that bother you? <laughs> Not really, no. Uh, because uh, you know me, I I don't like failures. And uh, <laughs> at the, at the age of thirty, I I never. I never had a chance to to defend my title in the proper way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> because there was Roger Federer and already Rafa Nadal on the, on on my back, so no, I never had a chance to defend it. You've got a hundred percent record in the Olympics. I think that's pretty good. Uh, that's that's pretty good. Yes. 
um, pretty good. Where do you keep your medal? My medal at my parents' house. That's the one thing they don't want to give me. So that's to, so to you, put in my flat. So, the, so do you have you have your trophies? I have, I, I have my trophy. I have my all the Grand Slam trophies, but uh, the Olympic gold medal they they keep it for themselves. Why? So why is that? Each time, because they 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 think it's important. And again, the, uh, you know, people in my country they they know me as a as a Olympic gold medalist, not because I'm the Grand Slam winner, which is kind of uh, I don't know. So, so it's, not, it, it's not bothering me. It's actually, it's actually, they, they 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 value a lot more Olympic gold medal than the Grand Slams. That's so interesting. So, so you think you're better yes. known in in Russia for being Olympic gold medalist than than a world number one? Absolutely. I I have. Well, world number one is maybe uh, maybe maybe also, but they definitely uh, they know me here more as Olympic gold medalist than the the Grand Slam winner. And the Olympic gold is what means the most to your parents. You think that's what makes them most proud? Well, they, they, don't get me wrong. They, they're proud of me, you know, doing everything, you know, winning <laughs> the slams, being number one in the world and uh, Olympic gold medal. But again, it's, this is something that, uh, something that when someone comes to their flat and they talk about, you know, their sons or my career, they, they always show them, look, this is this is what we have. This is his Olympic gold medal, which is he won. So that's uh, I, w- I would leave it for them just to to enjoy it. And do you have a a ring? I heard that they send you a ring if you win a medal. I do have a ring. Yes, I think so. I, I have a ring. Yes. Do you ever wear it, like a Super Bowl ring? No, I no. Yes, exactly. It's like like uh, the the ring which is I got last year from uh, Hall Hall of Fame. It's kind of the same. But you never wear it. No, I don't. I don't yeah, I never wear. It. I don't like you know wearing <laughs> the rings. Um, oh, it's so interesting. Do you, do you think about how often do you think about it? It it always comes to my mind. Always comes back when I when I see the events and uh, when uh, you know I I go on the talk show. They always ask mm-hmm. you know how I felt. You know what I do or I do in any. You know, interview was just like I do with you. They always ask. And um, yeah, it, 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 always, it always comes back to me. Definitely. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. I've uh, I've spent a lot of time with Yevgeny Kafanikov over the years. <laughs> I interviewed him a lot and I, I've never heard him... I've never heard him sound that sentimental about something, I w- and I wasn't—I wasn't expecting that. Actually, I think of him as quite a an unsentimental person. Actually, I was expecting him to to value his gold medal. I certainly wasn't expecting him to say that it, it ranks on a par for him with his Grand Slam titles, and I certainly wasn't expecting what he said about how he's perceived in in Russia and and that Olympic gold being of far greater status than the than the Grand Slam titles. Obviously, I loved what he said about his parents having the gold medal if it's not going to be about your person then in your parents house is 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 an acceptable secondary option i love that mm. yeah it's it's a lovely tale actually and and one we, we we've heard a couple haven't we tim mayot talking about how his mother decided she wanted to watch him play for the first time because it was the olympics I think Yevgeny overall over the years with distance from his career has softened in terms of his attitude to what he did and and he he's keener to talk about it now than he would have been then because he didn't like all the attention he didn't he didn't like really a lot of the job it seemed to me that came with being a tennis player he was very, very difficult to work with. I, I had to deal with him when he was world number one uh, as an ATP communications manager. And I it's found funny. Him- I feel like we know different Evgenies. Yeah, I, I, he was mm. a really, he was a nightmare to be honest with you for, for me at the time. And I, yeah, we we just we didn't get each other at all. At I WhatsApped David. Uh, I WhatsApped the group before the interview, and I said, "About to interview Kafelnikov. Um, obviously, got the the Olympic stuff. Anything else you want me to ask him?" And David said, "Yeah, ask him why he was such a bleep to me." <laughs> Yeah. In the 90s. Um, and we've we've actually met each other since then on the Champions Tour and uh, some years after he'd retired and he was a completely changed man. And I've seen this a lot with players. When the distance comes between themselves and their career, they're very different a lot of the time. If, if ever you get a chance to listen to the Larry Stefanki interview we did about a year ago, he coached both Marcelo Rios and Yevgeny Kofelnikov, the two players that I found the most difficult to deal with over the years. And uh, I don't think Rios has changed an awful lot, but I do think that Kofelnikov... I think, I think Kofelnikov is... 
there's more he's a better guy than i realized actually in terms of he, i think he does have a heart and mm-hmm. and, and actually is he, he was very nice to you in in dealing with us for for this interview for instance um mm. and, and he and, sent you his his best david yeah well I, I i like i say we had some run-ins that that i i didn't enjoy at all at the time <laughs> um but i also appreciate that we're from very different backgrounds and my expectations of what is appropriate behavior and attitudes I think are just completely different to his based on upbringing and and, and everything else and I think and, and culture and country and, and I've seen it with Marit Safin as well I, it, I, why should I understand completely the Russian way of thinking not that it is one size fits all but there are definitely different approaches and belief systems about things and um and i, I at least want to be open to, to understanding that that, that I, I maybe just don't get it uh and and like i say i i enjoyed listening to that and uh and i remember watching kafelnikov win that gold and i think it was really really impressive because tommy haas was a tough player back then and he desperately wanted a gold to kind of underline his career. You know, Tommy Haas was a really good player, world number two, but he never had a moment. He never had a crowning moment where he won a slam or he won the Olympic gold. Um, And he had a really good career. I'm not putting him down. It's just he didn't have a single Mark Rosse moment, for instance. We we spoke to him in in the second show. And um, the other interesting story point is that i remember watching all of these matches and and i was pulling for a young lad called roger federer to make his breakthrough in 2000 as an atp communications manager hoping to see the next big thing and this is the guy i've been hyping balls, up. please absolutely good for the movement yeah good <laughs> yeah. for the movement and uh, and lo and behold federer played his way well through to the i think to the semi-finals of the tournament and lost to haas uh for to try to get to the gold medal match and then he plays off for the bronze medal match and he's beaten by a young exciting frenchman called arno de pascal which again i'm watching this match i'm thinking come on federer if you could just win this bronze medal this could be the moment this could be the launch pad this could shut everybody up and instead in, in, he's beaten by this young Frenchman who we're also thinking, well, he's quite exciting and he never did anything ma- else. In a match between Roger Federer and Arnaud Di Pasquale, Arnaud Di Pasquale is the exciting talent. Well, he, I mean, he was he was an exciting player. And, and I, th- I think actually, and Di Pasquale was a real talent. Tennis as a profession just wasn't for him. He didn't, he didn't have that thick, mm. grinding attitude thick skin and grinding attitude that you needed and and he i mean he's still a significant figure in tennis behind the scenes and an absolutely charming guy lovely bloke um but it was just one of those interesting olympics because there wasn't an agassi figure there wasn't a a big name in men's tennis who was dominating kafelnikov was in that wilderness period for tennis where him and moyer and a couple of others became world number one i mean the year before kafelnikov became world number one for the first time and i remember being at the tournament i think in prague when he became world number one and he was in the middle of a six match losing streak of first round defeats 
and the vagaries of the ranking system because of the points falling off for other players meant that on the back of a six-match losing streak, he became world number one for the first time. Just one of those. And he, look, he'd earned, all, like? he'd earned all those points. You know, he'd won the Australian Open and all those sort of things. But it was really difficult to be taking him into press conferences and people are saying to him, how have you become world number one when you've just lost six matches in a row? You know, and he was really offended and he was defending his record and quite rightly so. He'd, he'd got a great record that had earned him his, his spot as world number one. But I think he, he was never understood really by American and British media. There was not a warm relationship and he didn't really understand them. They didn't really understand him and, and he was difficult. But as we've seen in that interview and, and, and we've seen separately, there's a much warmer figure actually there if you, if you meet him now than there was then. Just to pick up on some of those results you were saying in the men's draw at the Sydney Olympics, how I think Agassi missed it because his mum and sister had just been diagnosed with breast cancer, actually, and therefore he he skipped the Olympics. But as you said, it did lead to these interesting results. And Safin, having just won the US Open, ran into his nemesis in round one, <laughs> Fabrice Santoro. Who, uh, who beat him for a fifth time in a row and uh, would end up, I think, with a 7-2 head-to-head record. It's kind of cited as one of one of the odd, oddest ever head-to-head records. Um, Max Mernier beat Leighton Hewitt in round one and Carol Kuchera beat, uh, oh. beat, beat Tim Henman. Have um, you not ma- heard of Carol Kuchera? Tell me more. Kuchera, the man who is known as Little Cat because Miloslav Machir, his compatriot, was known as the big cat. Oh, I love that. Moved no, similarly. Matt doesn't love that. Well, I feel like it's setting you up to... To not, be crap. Well, to, <laughs> to not, you know, it's like, it's like baby fat. To live it's in like, someone's shadow. Yeah. Mm. Matteo Berrettini means Matty Little Hat. Yes. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> um, but that, <laughs> but Henman going out, kind of paved the way for Federer because wasn't that... I mean, Henman used to beat Federer mm, all the time. Back then. Back then. Yeah. Um, oh, and other... I can't believe I haven't mentioned this, but other notable things. Uh, Federer met Merker. Exactly. Yes. Mm. And I, I, didn't they, they shared a dorm together with some wrestlers. I seem to remember that being the story. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the notes, Matt. Oh. No, that, that's just in my sort of... Head. Or a mind palace. Right. Okay, that sounds like a party. So, I, I, sorry, I, I'm not quite because I looked at the draws and Merka wasn't playing. I'm not quite sure why she was there. Didn't they play mixed? No, then wasn't mixed in the Olympics yet. Mixed didn't come in until 2012, I think. Um, Have I made that up? No, I think they played mixed in the Hotman Cup. Around right. the time, yes. they, they, they um, did. That, that's correct. I mean, I, I but think they, but they was... met for the first time at the Olympics. Absolutely, sure. they met yeah. there. But I'm not. I'm having looked at the draws. I couldn't see Merka's name, so I'm I not. I think she might. Maybe have she been was a reserve. A, or something. I think so. Something like that. Right. Um, I'm not sure. It's um, when I was doing a bit of research ahead of that that interview with uh, with Kafelnikov, uh, an article from from The Guardian at the time made itself known by Steve Byerly, who was formerly the uh, the Guardian's tennis correspondent back then. And the, the headline of it is, Kofelnikov wins, the game loses. The subheader is, format needs to be reworked and before we get to Athens. Um, and it's such an interesting article from a sort of 
temperature check at the time of where the Olympics, where tennis was at in the Olympics and how that was perceived. I mean, it's pretty scathing about Kafelnikov. It says, Harry Potter is more likely to lose a Quidditch match than the Williams sisters were to lose the women's Olympic doubles final. Evgeny Kafelnikov, on the other hand, might have been regarded as the Malfoy of men's tennis. But even he managed to win the gold with something (laughs) resembling good grace. (laughs) Tennis, which returned to the Olympic arena in 1988 after a 64-year absence, continues to look out of place in its current format. Sooner or later, and preferably sooner, it must become a team event. There is a great deal of rubbish talked about the Olympic title being a fifth slam, but patently it is not and never will be. Kafelnikov summed it up thus. I would have given up all my other tournament wins for my gold medal, all of them except my French and Australian Open titles. Um, the men's tournament was always a loser once Andre Agassi, the gold medal winner at, in Atlanta, pulled out for family illness reasons and Pete Sampras chose not to bother. Only three of the 16 seeds made the quarterfinals, a vivid indication of how little the leading men's players cared about the competition. Um, <laughs> it goes on and on and on uh, in the same vein. I mean, firstly, David, is that, is it right? Is it an accurate characterization that Pete Sampras just didn't really bother with the Olympics? Well, I think back then, pretty much, yeah. I don't think he it was top of the agenda at all. Um, he he was definitely more interested in the uh, in the slams. I think particularly I, by that stage of his career as well. If you if you think about it, this is only a couple of months after he's he's won and broken Emerson's record at Wimbledon, and I think that that was a big deal to him. I'd love to know if he regrets that. I'm not sure he he would. I mean, it's quite an interesting point about whether the Olympic tennis should become a team event as opposed to individual Mm. goals. And and if tennis is not going to have this combined Fed stroke Davis Cup mixed team event, which to my mind has always been the one that should become kind of a fifth slam, then maybe Olympics is where where you try and do that. And there is definitely a, a possibility that that could be what we described there. And at the same time, since 2000, the premium, the value of gold medals and achievement at tennis feels like it has gone up a level again with the victories of Serena Williams and Andy Murray and the great stories of Monica Puig and all those sort of things. If it were to become a team event, though, that would disadvantage players from smaller and less prolific tennis nations and which is kind of counter to what the olympics is all about right which is raising the platform and the opportunity of of players athletes from from smaller less moneyed less advantaged nations so and you'd end up with you know situations like uh you'd end up with a lot more gigi fernandez-esque situations uh, and you know the figure skating situation i described where people would be end up representing countries just for the sake of being able to compete in in the olympics um Mm. i don't know but i found the 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 strength and ferocity of opinion in that article the the conviction that in order to survive and just itself as justify itself as an olympic sport the format simply has to change well that was very stephen barley i have to say right okay he he was a writer of that ilk if he's going to give an opinion he's going to give it with ferocity so that wasn't that wasn't the sort of ubiquitous 
general opinion. I, I would say it was a lot. Time. It was a lot more like that than it is now. There was a lot more sh- shoulder shrugs about it back then than there are now. I mean, we there are no question marks really about it anymore. I don't feel as though any of us really question its place. Um, but twenty twenty years ago, it's, it's it's hard to believe, but it is. And uh, so I think it it was more a prevailing notion, but. Um, I think Stephen Bailey in particular, yeah, he he decided to to put his foot to the floor and go with it. He definitely went with it. Um, Matt, would you make any changes to the Olympic tennis format? Make it a bit more ultimate? Some, you know, ultimate is is always the goal. Um, Timed sets, maybe? No, no. (laughs) Stop talking. Um... (laughs) I yeah I really want that mixed team event but I would want that every year so I think mm. the priority would be to get that in the cal- you know tennis should get that in its own calendar and I and I agree with you I think you know we wouldn't have as you said Monica Puig Leander Pays those stories wouldn't happen if it was a if it was a team event um and there's still I think Stephen Bailey wrote that it feels like every other tournament you know in that it's a draw and we get that the rest of the year. I never feel that about the Olympics. It doesn't feel like any other tournament to me. It feels like a tournament with a bit of a team aspect where you are going to get some strange results and some different stories and different people in the limelight. Even though in the last 10 years we've seen Serena, Murray and Nadal on the podium, well, and Federer and Djokovic, but there have always been other stories as well which you don't get at the Grand Sand because the focus is so much on the winner. Here you get several people who become storylines and I like I like that. And I already feel like basically it has a point of difference from the rest of the tennis tour and I don't I don't feel like it needs to become a team event to achieve that. But it's it's interesting that back in, you know, twenty years ago there was that strength of feeling. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting and interesting that it, it, it almost, I assumed that sort of the, the most negativity towards tennis in the Olympics came in 1988 when it was first reintroduced and kind of the curve has been upwards in terms of reception mm. since then. But there have been a lot more kind of ups and downs with tennis's relationship with the Olympics. I think right now it feels like it's riding a high. I don't think many people in, in tennis or in sport now would question tennis's inclusion in the olympics i'm sure there'd be some grumpsters maybe we can track down steve barley (laughs) see what he thinks now i think the only debate really surrounding tennis in the olympics now is exactly the question we've been asking everyone of sort of where it sits in their own career everyone accepts Mm. that tennis now is part of the olympics but there's a debate to be had about how much you value your medal compared to slams and other tournaments. And I think that's probably just personal and Mm. situational, um, depending on your Olympic experience and the rest of your career. And I'm not sure there's an answer to that question, Um, Mm. but I think that's kind of the debate. And I think, you know, even within ourselves, I think, Catherine, you probably put the Olympic, you probably give a little bit more weight to the Olympic gold than I do, actually, I must say, in terms of a player's career you know i if we're talking about it as a tiebreaker in terms of separating federer nadal and djokovic if they all end on 20 slams i wouldn't go with the olympic gold necessarily but i know that i think you would so i think there's debate in that sense but 
yeah, I mean, tennis is part of the Olympics and the sport is better off for it. Where would, where, where, how far down the tiebreaker would you put the Olympics? <laughs> oh, we're, we're getting into this. Your um, relationship with Leander Pays could, could quickly sour here, Matt, if he's listening. We've just done an hour, folks. We're, we're, I mean, this will be another hour. <laughs> no, I guess I would go after slams. I would just kind of go with kind of overall strength of career. I think. What, oh, come on, that's vague. No, but I think what what Navratilova and Ever looking into their careers has really taught me is that there is a lot more than the slams and Federer Nadal and Djokovic have really achieved a lot more than the slams as well and I think you could I think the number 1 and year end finals they play them every year that those are really in, you know those are important things and you know. I'm going to go for tea with Leander instead you're he, not worthy he's, he's putting the O2 ahead of uh yeah, Olympics, come on, Catherine. mate. Come no, on. no, no. So, which one are you having then, Matt? Who, who is it? Nadal <laughs> or Federer? Olympic gold comes into the conversation of body of work. It's part of that. It's not. I, I wouldn't sort of put it out on its own in the same way that the slams are for me. Mm. Mm, we'll talk about this later. The, um, the, the, the which ne- one is it then, Matt? Show is yeah. to be continued. Yeah, absolutely. And next episode, we'll be arriving at. Athens in 2004 which I consider to be the one that got away for Roger Federer and uh, yeah sure. thanks to thanks to Thomas Burdick and uh, an absolutely a golden moment for Nicholas Massou hang on didn't I, I said earlier in this episode that Serena Williams and Venus Williams were the only ones who'd won singles and doubles didn't I I can't remember, it was an hour ago. <laughs> I did do that, and I must correct myself and apologise to Nicholas Masu, who I had a delightful chat with a few days ago. They are the only women to have done that. I've done a sort of reverse Andy Murray. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they're the only women to have done that, but of course it was uh, something that Nicholas Masu of Chile achieved in 2004. And uh, we'll be talking about that and the whole that whole competition in our next episode of Olympics Relived. Um, I hope you're enjoying them and we'll, we'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.